we have this very lo-fi setup. I grabbed one of my stools from the kitchen and piled some books on it and then put my phone on top of it with the microphone. We're taping this in January 2021. The Great Gatsby has just gone public domain, which means anyone can now take the source material that F. Scott Fitzgerald created and published in 1925, which given the book's legacy, you're going to be a little surprised to hear it was a complete failure when it was first published by Charles Scribner and Sons in 1925. Minjin Lee has just written a new introduction to this classic novel and she joins us today in the studio, well, I should say, from her home over Zoom. Min, can we talk about why you decided to write this introduction? And where does Gatsby sit for you in American canon? Oh, that's such a good question. Hi, Miwa. (laughs) This is kind of a high-class, classy problem. I was asked by Penguin Classics to write the introduction for several different books, and I had to pass because they take an enormous amount of time because you have to think about the author. You have to think about all the work that she or he has done. But I really wanted to do Gatsby because it was a book that I read as a child. It's a book that I returned to as an adult and then also as a writer. So over and over again, I've returned to this book, and I cannot say it's my favorite book in the world. It's not. But it's a book that made me think about the social novel in a different way of how do I get readers to really think about very, very complicated ideas about class and America and how America has failed so many people through a really soapy allegory, which is what Gatsby is. It makes you read it. You can just swallow it very quickly and then not necessarily think about it, but you kind of know that he's given you all these different types. And I think that when a writer does that well, it actually has a chance of being in the canon. And that's what ended up happening to this book, even though, as we know, it was a commercial failure. It's roughly 180 pages, depending on which edition you're looking at. And even there, It was kind of too modern for its moment because the idea of the social novel having to be a trollop length or a George Eliot length or that kind of 400 plus pages where Gatsby really, Fitzgerald gets in there and he pairs everything down. This novel is driven by the dialogue. He's not great at character. Dialogue is faster to read than prose. Mm -hmm. So if you see a lot of dialogue in the page, the way the reader views it is a kind of scanning that makes the experience of reading go faster. And when the reading goes faster, then the reader feels like they're accomplishing more. So one of the things that, I mean, I study the experience of reading in the same way that I study the experience of writing. And Mm -hmm. dialogue is a very quick way to get the reader to feel like, oh, I'm plowing through this book and it's going really quickly. What I found really interesting about the dialogue in Gatsby is that he's talking about a person, Gatsby himself, Jay Gatsby, mm-hmm. who has mm-hmm. reinvented himself by imitating dialogue. And for me right. as an immigrant, that's really interesting because English is my second language. And wherever I am, I kind of think, well, what do people talk like? You know, whether right. it's a certain vernacular, a diction, or a syntax, how do I understand what kind of person says old sport? Right. Right. Which is what Jay Gatz says. I mean, did he say that when he was growing up in Nebraska? Probably not. Right. He thought that's what ruling class people sounded like. But of course, ruling class people are looking at him like, no, that's not what we sound like. <laughs> and I found that conflict interesting in the dialogue. I mean, it's a novel about outsiders, essentially, yes. and wanting to belong. And and yes, it is first and foremost a novel about class, but it is told from a really classic sort of point of view as a coming of age story. And it's not just Nick Carraway's coming of age, it's also Jay Gatsby's coming of age. And this idea that you can make yourself and yet the ruling class that you're trying to be part of will always know, they will always smell the fraud. Yes. There's a really telling line from Nick towards the end of the book, maybe it's only two thirds of the way through, where he says, 
he's judging Gatsby too. Like he was just relieved when Gatsby had a quick comeback and could push off someone's inquiry. And it was a sad moment because Nick just reveals himself to sort of be this fraudulent person who, even though he is rooting for Gatsby in a way, he's perfectly comfortable living the way he's always lived with the status that he's always had and understanding the world as it's meant to be to them. And so this tiny, tiny novel is not only a microcosm of the 1920s. Fitzgerald started in what, 22? Yeah, it's a of that world. It's the post-war, uh, the Great War. He missed fighting. He was dying to go. He even had a custom uniform made by Brooks Brothers. I mean, Fitzgerald was so interesting in that way. He he thought he would become a man by going to war. He was flunk, he flunked out of Princeton. So he decided that the gentleman's way of dealing with flunking out of Princeton is to go to the war. And said so mm-hmm. he was about to go. And of course, and the armistice was signed. So he had his nice uniform. He had the opportunity of going down south and meeting the celebrated Zelda Sayre, but he never mm-hmm. even made it the war. But there's a kind of a pretense of Fitzgerald himself that gets imputed onto Gatsby. The way rumors swirl around Gatsby in this book, and you get snippets of it. Again, this is the dialogue driving the story. You get snippets of, well, he killed a man once, or he's the Kaiser's nephew, and all of these gossipy little bits, when actually he's just a guy. And it's really people speaking to the money that he has, and the house, and the privilege, and everything he's been able to buy. And it has nothing to do with this actual human being. It's wild, and it's very modern, too, because Mm -hmm. right now we are in an era of social media when we are curating our own myth. Who are we? What is Mm -hmm. a myth that we're making, right? So now you even have influencers who are pretending to have money and access to incredible experiences that it turned out they didn't, Mm -hmm. or they had to borrow on credit cards to be on that yacht, to have the image, Mm -hmm. to create this idea of being fabulous. I kind of think we are populated by a whole bunch of Gatsby's right now. Absolutely. We don't see the tragedy in it because Mm -hmm. this novel is satire and it's a tragedy and it's a coming of age. So it's all those things. But Gatsby, I mean, what a tragic figure. How tragic is it to have to invent yourself on social media, right? To me, it also represents a stunted emotional development, to be perfectly honest, that you're so lost in the physical component of it and the surface representation. If you look at the way Gatsby views Daisy, And the way he views sort of his past in general, but especially Daisy, where he's just, he's really a little boy who's stuck on this idea of what something should mean or what a moment meant. And it is terrifically sad that he can't get beyond this. And you sort of watch him fall to pieces, not because Daisy necessarily rejects him, but because he can't get past his definition of what his life and his love should be. Precisely. And also, if you are stunted and you aren't growing, you also suffer from a blindness. He can't see Daisy. And this is what's really interesting to me about sexism. If you really don't understand that a woman is a human being... You can't Mm -hmm. see her. You can't Mm -hmm. see how she's just as vain and frivolous and ridiculous and also terrified. Daisy's a terrified character. She puts up with a horrible marriage because she's terrified and also because she's selfish. And I think if you can see a woman for being those things and you realize, oh, she's human. And I think it's really difficult for Gatsby to see her as human, not just as an object of meaning. Like if he had this woman, then his life would actually have meaning and purpose and he would be accepted. It's fantasy. But is Gatsby even capable of seeing any other human being as a human being? I mean, doesn't he just see them as sort of, I don't want to say chess pieces, but 
doesn't he see people more for their role and what they can do for him? I mean, at one point he does come to Nick and say, hey, I've got the sideline. Like, would you be interested? And Nick's like, oh, I can't do it. And I am still not entirely clear if Nick knows that Gatsby's on the make and is going to ask him to do something illegal or if he's just like, no, really, I'm too busy. And I like the fact that Fitzgerald doesn't really lay it out and you can sort of read into it what you want. I don't know if Gatsby actually sees people. Nick was always a means to Daisy for him. When I look at really smart business people, and I think Gatsby was a smart business person. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. He was a hardworking business person, which means that even though he may be blind about the total humanity or the idea of love, he was probably very clear-sighted about transactions. And I Mm -hmm. think he thought that he was going to have a transactional relationship with Mm -hmm. Nick, kind of like, I get you a little hustle, you give me a little hustle, and then, you know, we're going to be okay. And then Nick's like, no, 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 I'm not going to hustle and pimp out my second cousin. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Right? But, But hey, if it's the idea of love romantically, I'm interested in being that ambassador, but I'm not going to do it for money because I don't need to. You don't have a desperation in Nick. Nick is a curious observer. I mean, basically he's a writer. What's Gatsby's legacy as the book? It's more than a cultural artifact. Yeah. We look back at the history of publishing in America. Things that were huge 10, 15, 20 years ago have fallen off the map. Things that were huge 100 years ago have disappeared. And other things have stood the test of time. And you look at these books sometimes and you're like, really, this is the one? Okay. Don't necessarily agree. I mean, I think as a culture, we need to have a much larger conversation about canon and who's deciding it and who's teaching it. And I think we have so much great writing that slips through. If you look at how many great books came out in 2020, and many of which got lost simply because the news cycle outpaced anything we could do culturally. And also people need to hear about a book more than once. No, it's very funny that you say that because I remember talking to a publicist and she explained to me that you have to hear about a book 10 times. And I remember thinking, huh? And then I realized, no, actually you have to hear about a book almost a hundred times. Right. And even then people have to shake you and then give you a copy of it. (laughs) And then still you might not read it. So I kind of think, Well, at this point, our attention span is completely destroyed Mm -hmm. by technology. Most Mm -hmm. people have, you know, are not willing to deal with very, very difficult texts. And I understand why people are so taxed right now. They don't find the comfort in it. And I also think I'm going to get in trouble for saying this. I think sometimes we writers have forgotten what we're dealing with. And sometimes if we are not working on things that, that give you more pleasure in the reading, you're going to lose the reader. And you're going to lose a lot of readers. So some people will write a book for 50,000 people, but but even 50,000, that would be an incredible achievement to reach 50,000 readers. And I think it's important that the writer has to think this way and the reader has to think that way. But we are losing readers because I think we're not thinking about the architecture. I think Gatsby stands up because the architecture is very, very strong. And he worked on it. He worked so hard on crafting Mm -hmm. the structure. And the more I learned about how he worked on it, the more Mm -hmm. I see the scaffolding. And it's kind of cool. It is an exceptional novel. I mean, it balances narrative propulsion and the dialogue. And yeah, the structure is exquisite. It absolutely is. And it actually makes up for the characters where you're like, oh, yeah, you're back. Oh, hi, you're back. I know why you're back. I understand what you represent. But are we done with you yet? (laughs) (laughs) It's like the television show Seinfeld. Right. If that show was 32 minutes, you wouldn't watch it. 
But yeah. that length works perfectly. Some mm-hmm. of those characters are almost hateful if you took a little bit too much of them. Like one more extra tablespoon and you'd be like, no. But right. at that length, their level of irritation is really perfect. And when you think about Gatsby and its length, it really could not be a longer book because you wouldn't stay with those characters. At some point, you just say, hey, Gatsby, wake up. Just wake up because you can't. This is nonsense. I mean, Daisy is a mean person in the same way you'd want to shake Daisy. So the fact they're types, they're archetypes, and archetypal work in a really short length can work in the same way when you mm-hmm. think about a fable. It's it's a very, very simple class fable that's so structurally tight. And it's basically, a, it's a murder. It's got a body involved in it. Right. And a gruesome murder at that. Was it too modern for 1925? I think that you're right. I think it could have been too modern. It could have been slightly over people's heads. He believed that it wasn't that problem. He believed it was either the title or because the women characters weren't very good. Mm-hmm. And that's what he said. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something to that. The women are pretty despicable. Mm-hmm. Every woman is pretty horrible in that book. Like I felt sorry for white women, the way they're represented <laughs> in the book. I even said so. I was like, oh, I'm just going to defend white women here because you know what? They were given short shrift. Right. <laughs> but I mean, it makes sense to me that the the armed services edition is the reason why this book came back during the war, because I think that men could read this book and go like, hey, I know what it's like to want to change myself. I, I know mm-hmm. what it's like to want to be somebody to earn the love of a girl. So they could have read it wrong or they could have seen it as a quest novel as opposed to what it was, which is mm-hmm. essentially an American tragedy. But either way, the length was so important, I think, then and also now, in addition to the the readability of it, because mm-hmm. it is essentially a very soapy plot. It's incredibly soapy, but it also informs two of my favorite recent novels. There's No One Is Coming to Save Us by Stephanie Powell Watts, where you've got a Gatsby-like character who comes back to North Carolina, and he's always sort of sitting in the background of this community. It's much more the story of this family, which I really love. And then also Mohsen Hamid's How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia. Mm. It's a Gatsby in Central Asia sort of telling his story, and it's really hypnotic because he's using the second person plural. And it's that weird intimacy that Fitzgerald actually does in the first person in Gatsby. But to see sort of the ghosts of Gatsby show up in these two incredibly, one very American novel and one sort of beautifully global. Does Gatsby continue influencing how we think and what we do? Or or is it too close to us now in this moment? I think it'll continue to influence us for a very long time. I do. Mm-hmm. I think that it's not an accident that all these publishers are coming out with their own editions and then actually inviting so many different kinds of authors to right. reintroduce this idea. It's not an accident because the property, the idea of Gatsby will never die mm-hmm. as long as we have hearts that are filled with aspiration. If you ever felt left out, if you ever felt excluded, if you ever felt unloved, and you think, oh, through the dint of my work, through the dint of my outfits, I will somehow get you to love me, that's never going to go away. And I think that that's what Fitzgerald did so brilliantly in this book. You can literally refer to it as the perils and vanity of assimilation. Yeah. And it's such a great line. That's such a great line because that can be anything. And it's not just the immigrant's experience of assimilation. It, assimilation is a universal construct. Actually, the process of education is nothing but assimilation. You come right. to a position when you want to learn something, you're assimilating new knowledge and therefore you're changing and actually killing off parts of your old self. This is what's interesting about any educational experience that you are transforming this endless metamorphosis. But then why do you do it? 
for me, that's the writer's question. It's like, why do we go through all that process? Is it to get you to love me? Maybe. How many of us could admit that? I did this because I wanted you to love me. I threw this party because I wanted you to love me. I wanted mm-hmm. you to love me because I don't love myself without you. That's really what's going on in this. And because he's so raw, it's possible that Nick can have compassion for Gatsby in a way that we don't have compassion for really anybody else in the book. There is a profound loneliness that runs through this book, though. Every single character is incredibly isolated, incredibly lonely. They know the role that they're expected to play. Mm-hmm. Myrtle has her role. George has his role. Tom and Daisy have their role. Nick has it. Everyone knows their role. Jordan knows her role. But at the minute they start to get pushed out of that role, they panic. It's almost like watching a cat go <laughs> towards water and they're like, ah, no, 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 not this, not this. And Gatsby does it too. And yet he's the guy where you're looking at him going, really, you too? But he's so profoundly lonely. Oh my gosh. And when the father appears at the very end, and then you realize like, oh, this kid must have been lonely all his life. But then again, we have to think about the horrible conceit of fiction at all is that, you know, you don't have extroverts writing books. (laughs) 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 This is true. (laughs) Almost all novels, which are written in a solitary way, it doesn't work in a collaboration. You are in a room and you are working for a long time without any promise of any reader. You're doing it because you are so desperate for connection. It's not keeping a diary. You are writing for publication, which means that you are lonely. I admit it. I wouldn't have been a writer unless I was lonely. I wouldn't have been a reader first if I wasn't lonely. I was desperate to understand another way of understanding the world, which is what you get in these books. You know I love Pachinko, but I have this soft spot for free food for millionaires where I'm like, this book, this book... I was asked to write the introduction to Gatsby, I believe, because of my writing Free Food for Millionaires, which is a character and a community based in Queens. And also Queens is featured in Gatsby. Mm -hmm. But mostly Mm -hmm. I think it's because I write about class in America. Mm -hmm. So it looks like an immigrant novel. That was my Trojan horse to write an immigrant story. But what I really wanted to talk about was money. The book Mm -hmm. is titled Free Food for Millionaires because what I'm trying to understand is why are the wealthy in this world given everything, almost like an entitlement? And then I'm trying to understand what does that mean for people who aren't millionaires to understand money and class in America? I also wanted to explore gender. So that's why I wrote that book about Koreans in the Northeast, because I think when Koreans came to the Northeast and they settled in Queens. They were trying to understand like, where is our place? And then of course it was through education and then they get Mm -hmm. access to things. So you have a young character for free food who goes to a fancy college of Princeton. Ironically, it's interesting because Fitzgerald went to Princeton and he flunked out and he also migrated from where he came from. And Mm -hmm. I'm interested in migration and immigration because America often pretends to be, especially the majority Americans, pretend that there's no migration going on. There's no aspiration going on when, in fact, America really wouldn't exist unless the average person somehow believed that they would be rich, that they would be powerful. Like if we understand politics today, why aren't we changing inheritance laws? Why aren't we being more tough on tax loopholes for the wealthy? It's because I think lower middle class, middle class people somehow believe that one day these inheritance laws will protect them (laughs) when actually, in fact, it will never affect them. And I think it's because we all share this wish, this collective fantasy that we could somehow be rich and powerful when in reality, it has gotten so much worse for 
middle-class people in the world today. And I think that I wanted to introduce Gatsby because I want to introduce the social lens that Fitzgerald himself was grappling with as a writer. And it's something that I personally have so many issues with in America today. It's easy for people to forget that art in a lot of ways is driven by money and power and sort of who succeeds and who has access and who is able to even find an audience. That's not simply because you wrote a great thing. There's a lot of machinery that goes into it. And I say that as part of the machinery. I think if you're lucky that you get to be part of the machinery, and I think Mm -hmm. that people are lying if they don't want access to more audience. If you really didn't want more audience, you would keep a diary. We have this whole idea that everybody is trying to express your point of view. You can express your point of view, but then do you believe that you are entitled to an audience? And how much of an audience? Like, are they supposed to find you? Like, are they supposed to knock on your door and say, oh, by the way, do you have an idea for me (laughs) that I want to share with the world? And here, let me expose all of myself and exploit all of my resources to make sure that your idea (laughs) is valuable. No, we actually do need people to vet things. And it's not fair. It really isn't fair because there have been so many gatekeepers who have biases. Mm -hmm. And I think that I'm constantly trying to understand why do have some gatekeepers have biases? Why do others not? Why are certain groups privileged and why are others not? And I wrote Free Food for Millionaires because I was trying to expose those powerful inequities. And I focused on fashion, actually, in some Mm -hmm. ways, Mm -hmm. focused on uh, Wall Street because I was trying to understand, well, where do immigrants fit in? Like, I didn't write about a writer because I don't think immigrants in my community were encouraged to be writers. <laughs> that would have been a preposterous understanding. Like, you're never going to see me writing auto fiction. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. <laughs> I was about to say too, and I can think of a lot of writers who I'm quite fond of who they were first gen Americans and their parents were like, yeah, you're not going to do this. You're right. really not going to do this. And they did. And they've gone on to be great successes, which I really appreciate. But, you know, as also that kid whose parents had let's call it not quite the same expectations that I had. We do have to throw a little elbow here and there to end up in the spaces that we want to be in when we're talking about something that isn't Wall Street or isn't fashion or isn't medicine or accounting or banking or consulting, you know, the great ABCs. Gatsby does speak to a lot of us from different moments and different places. And the idea, you know, westward expansion in America, the idea that you could make yourself if you just went west. And we don't talk about stolen land and other things like that. It's amazing to me that we have somehow as a society decided that immigration is only a thing that happens to other people, that we're still talking about others. We're still talking about outsiders. And it's like, well, actually... Gatsby had a really rough go coming east. Nick ended up leaving the east. Daisy and Tom decamp for a little bit, but that's really just to let the scandal go away and they're going to have a new house and everything will be fine. They're just going to go to Europe for a little bit and let things calm down. But everyone has their place in Gatsby. They just don't know it. It's so funny that you say all this because it's so smart about Manifest Destiny and about going this westward expansion. So when you think about the beginning of America and you have the the colonial settlers coming in and mm-hmm. doing their damage and then going west to make more and more money to exploit more resources, natural resources, and create more damage as they go along west. Right. But when we think about class, when we think about polis, when we think about history, we think about the Northeast. So their return migration to the Northeast is really about getting access, being ruling class. To be truly ruling class has a great deal to be tied up with New York City. 
So it's not an accident when you think about a Henry James or Edith Wharton, Mm -hmm. the old families or the Roosevelt's. We're talking about a kind of New York, very, very specific, who are your people and who really matters. When you think about the Astors and the Vanderbilts and the Roosevelt's and people like that, that's really where the Gatsby is coming from because Fitzgerald shows up. You know, he washes up in New Jersey. He's like, wait a second. (laughs) I'm nobody. (laughs) And I kind of think like, yeah, you are nobody. I mean, Sinclair Lewis had that experience. Like, I'm nobody. Who else had, had that experience? I mean, gosh, like so many writers come to New York City and they go like, mm-hmm. oh, from the Midwest, go like, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just like a fresh out of water. And I think it's, it's a wonderful thing because for me as an immigrant, I identified with those people. Like I identified as an immigrant with the migrants of New York. So right. for me, exotic writers like Sinclair Lewis from Minnesota, F. Scott Fitzgerald from Minnesota, Maud Hart Lovelace as a little kid, Minnesota. Right. <laughs> I remember the first time I went to Minnesota, I thought, what is this strange country in Minnesota <laughs> where all these writers came from? But I identified with them because for me, they were immigrants. What do you want readers to think about? when they return to Gatsby or come to Gatsby for the first time? I mean, I've, I've met some folks recently who are reading Gatsby for the first time. What do you want them to think about? You know, it's strange, but I'm going to say, I want them to think about idolatry. Like, yeah. that's like a really strange thing to say, but I want, no. to, <laughs> <laughs> no. I want to talk about idolatry because I want to understand, like, what altar do you worship? And what is your idol? Like, what is that that you're looking for? And what would you be willing to sacrifice everything for? I believe that we are worshiping constantly at so many different altars and very unconsciously. And I think that Fitzgerald, it's not like he himself had figured it all out because I don't Mm -hmm. think he did. I mean, most writers, all of us, we're just a bunch of train wrecks. But Mm -hmm. I do think that on the page, they were trying to understand and in the pages themselves as as an aggregate, what is it that we are worshiping and what's Mm -hmm. wrong with it? Because idolatry is always doomed. It's always doomed. It will never be enough. The idol itself will never love you enough. It's an idol. It can't love you. It's a thing. So whether you worship at the altar of money or class or power or beauty or family or perfection or art, you can worship at the altar of art and art will not love you back. (laughs) This is true. Like you can love art, but art will not love you back. And you can all worship at the altar of money and it will not love you back. Mm-hmm. But I think that Fitzgerald was really working on that. And, you know, he is somebody who was studying to be, a, he was thinking about becoming a priest. Once those Jesuits get to you, <laughs> once those Catholic schools get to you, you can't just completely forget about it. And I think it's in his work. He mm-hmm. was a nice Catholic boy. And then he decided, oh, I'm not going to do that. But one of his most important teachers was a priest. And mm-hmm. I do think that it's not explicit in this of religion, but I do think idolatry is a very important aspect of it. I think when you pair that with the idea that this book broke Fitzgerald's heart, the failure of this book at publication in 1925 really did break his heart. He ends up going to Los Angeles to be a screenwriter that does not pan out for him the way he would hope. And he dies essentially destitute in Los Angeles with an unfinished novel, The Last Tycoon, which his editor then finished and put out into the world. And actually it was the posthumous publication of The Last Tycoon that helped bring Gatsby back because they were bound together in a single volume. Am I remembering yeah. that right? Yes, no, it is true. Uh, so the Armed Services edition where all these soldiers read mm-hmm. Gatsby created a certain kind of audience. And this goes back to this whole idea of when do people read your books? So you could even read a book and then still forget who they are. 
And then when mm-hmm. they have a book out, they're like, oh, I think I might have read something by this person, right? <laughs> so yeah, so in a foxhole somewhere, there were American mm-hmm. soldiers reading Gatsby. And they come back and then after, no, no, I'm sorry, that when the tycoon came out posthumously, and then you also had his friend published The Crack Up, which is a memoir. And The right. Crack Up is a collection of essays which were published in Esquire. And they're fascinating because it talks about what a train wreck he was. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he basically invented this kind of confessional memoir category. And I think all those things together, we have the last tycoon being coupled with a publication, kind of like a free book with a book. You know, like how nowadays they have a chapter of another book and a book that you like Mm -hmm. by another author. So I think it's really those three things that brought about the kind of canonization of Mm -hmm. Gatsby. And then it, it continued. The continuing itself, that's really about pass along. I mean, it's not the whole, this whole idea of you got to read this. And then you have a lot of English teachers saying, hey, you know what? This is a very short novel I could teach. (laughs) (laughs) There's that too. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.